Hi, my name is Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Um, before we begin, I just want to make you aware of a few things. Um, first thing is, I'm now on Twitter. You can follow me at 24 Frames Cast. The blog, which is 24framescast.blogspot.com, and you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. Um, this is going to be a close-up episode on William Frequent Sorcerer. Um, there are going to be spoilers throughout for this and The Wages of Fear. Hope you enjoy it. In 1971, William Friedkin directed The French Connection. It received five Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year. In 1974, he directed The Exorcist. It made history. Since then, Friedkin has spent over two years in five countries on three continents, creating his latest film, an unusual adventure into the realm of suspense. The word remake strikes terror into the hearts of all cinephiles. Our first question is often why, followed by a period of denial in which we try to desperately kid ourselves it won't be awful before the word of mouth begins to circulate that indeed the remake in question is an utter travesty. We live in an age where remakes are more and more common and along with the reboot they are representative of the more commercial side of Hollywood. The concept of recycling is not a new one but indeed some of my favourite films are themselves remakes. Ben-Hur, Magnificent Seven, The Thing, Airplane, The Thin Red Line, are brilliant films in their own right, despite the existence of an earlier incarnation. I am not opposed to the idea of a remake or reboot, and have one quite simple criteria, which is, do I enjoy the film in its own right? If it is based on a novel, then I'm always interested in how the filmmakers have interpreted the material, even when there is in existence other films based on the same source material. The Wages of Fear is rightly considered a masterpiece of cinema, a story of a desperate group of men trying to transport a lethal cargo of nitroglycine across a nightmare third world country is as bleak as you could ever imagine. Director Henri Clouseau's adaption of George's Arnaud novel would to any normal person be considered definitive, which is why it would take a director like William Friedkin to even think about remaking it, which is exactly what he did in 1977 with Sorcerer. For the record, this was actually the third time the film had been adapted for the screen. The Wages Affair was remade also in 1958 as Violent Road. The 70s is my favourite era for cinema. It was a time when directors and producers called the shots and when film stars actually seemed worthy of the fame. Before the success, there were the bombs. Films like Heaven's Gate became a byword for rampant ego and monster budget, effectively ending the blank checks and ushering a new age of multiplex-friendly fare. How directors got to be in the position where blank checks were simply forwarded to them was relatively simple. Give the studios a hit and your project was greenlit, or as Francis Ford Coppola once said, one for them and one for me. Friedkin has scored two big hits in a row with The French Connection in 1971 and The Exorcist in 1973. He was therefore in a unique position to do whatever project he wanted next. You could ask why remake a classic, but if you were to believe reports, Friedkin was something of an egomaniac. I tend by nature to ignore these types of claims, preferring instead to look at things slightly more objectively. Having made two huge hits, it would stand to reason that Friedkin thought he had discovered the magic touch, and indeed from a studio perspective he would be queuing up to make his next film. The Exorcist and the French Connection were both genre pieces that found mass-wide appeal. Perhaps Friedkin had really found the key to success. From his perspective, you can begin to understand why remaking Wages of Fear would seem like an attractive proposition. It was dark in tone, and there was scope to increase the scale of the film, making a very attractive modern action film for adults. Universal decided to back the project. After all, with such a successful director on board, what could possibly go wrong? 
Rumble began in a variety of locations across the world, with the bulk of the production taking place in the Dominican Republic. Originally, Frugan approached Steve McQueen to play the lead role of Scanlan, who, although keen on the project, wanted wife Ali McGraw installed as producer in order to be able to take her with him. In a decision he would later regret, Frugan turned McQueen down. Eventually, cast Roy Schneider in the role, whom he had previously collaborated with on the French Connection. Schneider is one of my favourite actors, his prolific career has many duds, however they are firmly overshadowed by a series of bona fide classics. I've always found Schneider to have an effortless charisma, the rare kind of star quality that makes acting seem so easy. Art director John Box, a veteran of David Lean's epics, was enlisted to create the hellish unnamed South American country, and in a visionary piece of casting, German electronic group Tangerine Dream were commissioned for their first soundtrack. By the time filming was over, freaking out, falling out with nearly everybody on set, the firing of crew members was an almost daily occurrence, and Freakin soon realised he would need far more money than he'd originally been budgeted. The cost of the film spiralled from four to an eye-watering $22 million, and was released in 1977 against a $12 million science fiction film that parent studio Fox were panicking would be a disaster. Only it wouldn't be George Lucas who would be on the wrong end of a catastrophe. The story could not be bleaker. In the heat and squalor of an unnamed South American town, there is only one way out, the airplane. Only to get a ticket you must have money, only the jobs are few and far between and the ones that there are pay next to nothing anyway. Most spend their day drinking the meager wages away with the chance of escape made all the more improbable because most people don't have the right papers to live in the country anyway. An opportunity presents itself when an oil well explodes, volunteers are needed to help put the fires out with payment enough to leave. There is however one catch, in order to put the fires out the oil company will need to blow the well up and the only thing they have to do the job is nitroglycerine possibly one of the most unstable explosives known to man. What's worse, in order to get the nitroglycerin into the well, the volunteers would have to drive the cargo across 200 miles of land. The reward is $10,000 in cash, as well as legal citizenship. Along the way, there are rickety rope bridges, landslides, bandits, fallen trees to contend with, as well as the near constant driving rain. The chosen volunteers are not exactly the most likeable of people either. Amongst their trades are fraud, terrorism, gangsterism and murder. Sorcerer is a classic adventure film of man against nature defying the odds to win. However, unlike the classic adventure film, we don't root for the protagonists in the same way. We don't cheer them on to succeed, and there's no rousing finale in triumphant victory to savour in come the final credits. Indeed, it is the anti-heroes adventure film, and very much a product of the 70s cinema, with a downbeat take on the convention made by a director with almost total control of every aspect of production. Frequent's directorial style to me represents the merging of the European sensibilities of objective character study and journalist camera aesthetics with a classical Hollywood genre convention. He is therefore perhaps new Hollywood incarnate, with respectful nods to the past and a daring vision of the future. Sorcerer begins with a kinetic journey across the world giving us the backstory of the lead protagonists, which was lacking from the wages of fear. In Israel, a seam of Palestinian terrorists plants and detonates a bomb in the streets. True to form, Freegan shot footage of the actual aftermath of a bombing that took place not far from his hotel. Of course, in true auteur fashion, he couldn't go just go to a country that looked like Israel. Chased down by the IDF before shooting his way out in an incredibly violent scene, we assume Kasim is killed by the baying mob before we cut to a rather drab-looking Paris. It is an almost Battle of Algiers-style vignette punctuated with some brutal and gory violence. Israel with its medieval backstreets is in stark contrast to Paris in the introduction of Victor, a forster about to bring about the collapse of a massive bank and family institution. With its decadent offices and restaurants, the film's place slows dramatically. Amongst the elite of French society, the camera becomes far more restrained, with wide shots of classically decorated offices and large mahogany desks. 
Friedkin gives the interior scenes a cavernous sense of size and scale, swallowing the characters and their surroundings. Soon we see Victor trying to broker his way out of the disaster, leading to his friend committing suicide and a hurried escape from his wife at a restaurant before we cut to our final introduction. Here we see Friedkin in familiar territory, the streets of New York with Scanlon on the way to rob some gangsters at a church. It could almost be a scene out of the French connection with the close-ups of characters in cars and Hood's counting money, all filtered through a camera with the settings firmly switched to grime. Scanlon is afforded slightly more screen time with events that will have consequences come the film's end. Although a Hood, he is one who does not kill and in his own words never carries a gun. When he is made a scapegoat and a bounty placed on his head, it is as far as freaking goes in making any of his characters seem sympathetic or indeed that their exile may in some ways be unjust. What I find interesting about the opening is how Freaky does not stick to one style during any of the scenes. They could all effectively be from different films, and I very feel much despise a dual effect. In the first instance, there is a statement being made about the nature of the characters. They are, in their own ways, criminals and effectively expelled from society to the jungle. Again, later on in the film, we will see that there are more criminals living in the town. Interestingly, it is frequent strips the character of their personality and status the next time we see them. Because he makes zero reference to his past and no doubt extreme political views, Victor goes from ra riches to rags, yet never belies his past of wealth and no doubt luxury. We almost know less about Scanlon personally, and his status within his world, but in the jungle he exhibits the most vocal and physical desire to lead. Secondly, Frequent portrays a very bleak view of the world. The spectre of terrorism represents an archaic threat to society, where the innocent are killed in the name of causes. We see crime at the top of society, the political causes being substituted for commerce and greed. We don't know the details of the crime, but we see its effect when his partner kills himself, and no doubt the innocent people will suffer as a result of the deceit. The American sequence is even more misanthropic in its view of humanity. In cahoots with the gangsters is a priest, and whilst he helps count the money above him a wedding takes place, with the bride sporting not only a white dress, but also a black eye, most probably caused by the groom-to-be as the priest conducting the ceremony spouts passages from the Bible. The hypocrisy of the situation is of course there to see, making the expulsion of Scanlon seem all the more unjust, and the question if the place he's going to is really as bad as where he's come from. When we get to the jungle, Frequent inches the town in the same way a news reporter would a natural disaster. A body lies in the street, possibly dead, we don't know. We don't really hear what people are saying or identify what language they are talking in, with no subtitles, which is always something that is disconcerting in the extreme. Overseeing all this is a military dictatorship, with the iconography of the regime plastered on the walls. It is of course the perfect place to disappear, yet paradoxically it is the worst place to be in the world. Although unnamed, the country would be any one of the many South American governments of the 1970s ruled by corrupt generals, propped up by foreign governments and large corporations. Oil is a byword for wealth. It also acts in a similar capacity when we think of greed and corruption. Freakin enraged the board of Gulf Western by using a picture of his board of directors in the film the association being quite clear between them and the fictional situation he was presenting. This view of the world manifests itself in a visual palette that gives a presentation of the jungle I've never really seen before. Normally when a jungle features in the film, directors cannot help shooting from a low angle, showing the light being diffused through the mist. It is perhaps an overly romantic presentation of the environment that we have come to see over the years. In the same way Frequent turns the joy and happiness of a wedding into a union of physical abuse, he turns the jungle into a variable weapon of nature, openly hostile to those travelling through it. By pulling the colour from the environment, there's also a sense of everything melding together. It is an incredibly dirty film to watch with the protagonist caped in sweat the entire time. The interiors of the town are sweat-drenched hovels with barely alive extras in the background. When you think back to the budget of $22 million, 
This seems extraordinary given the fact that vast portions of the film take place in the confines of a truck cabin and on a dirt road, but as anyone will tell you, making hell costs them the same as making heaven. Sorcerer has a physicality to it that we seldom see in modern filmmaking. All one need is imagine how hard it would be to have shot even the most simplistic of setups with all the weather elements bombarding the actors and crew. It's a testament then that Friedman is able to make such a coherent action film. Despite the chaos going on around them, the viewer is always more than aware of the threat within a scene, which of course comes with its own in the film's standout set piece. We've all seen the rickety bridge that characters have to cross that might fall down any minute. In Sorcerer, this concept is blown up even further when characters have to drive the trucks across a wooden bridge in a gale with a raging river below. For the record, it was this scene that would see the film's budget go through the roof. Made on a system of hydraulics to simulate the buttering, it was washed away and had to be re rebuilt in another country hampered by many of the trucks falling off into the river below. The first truck driven by Scanlon and the mysterious Nilo crosses relatively easy before Victor and Kasim arrive for their turn. Of course the bedrock of the disaster has already been laid, we see cuts to wood breaking and ropes straining in the wind trying to keep the thing up. As the truck approaches, Kazim gets out to guide the truck across. Victor moves along at a steady pace before Kazim falls through the wood and holds on for dear life. What I love about the scene is how Frugan uses nature to cover every possible avenue of escape. The wind is so strong Kazim's voice cannot be heard, the river is so strong he will die if he falls in, the rain is so bad the truck could slip at any moment and is inching closer to where to Kazim dangles. The scene doesn't rely on any searing musical cues or rapid editing, instead Frugan simply cuts from close up to wide shot, it is simplistic as shop structure to a scene you will ever see. We are constantly made aware of the immediacy of the threat through the language of film to convey the spatial awareness and threat conveyed in it. What's more in that in a wider context and something I will expand on later, it's hard to really care about the characters in peril, yet in the moment it's easy to ignore this and feel the tension of the scene on its technical qualities alone. characters in films, there are some pretty horrific people amongst them including Hannibal Lecter, Patrick Bateman, Darth Vader, Michael Corleone to name but a few. All however their redeeming features. Hannibal Lecter is charming and has a hatred of tossers that we can all relate with. Patrick Bateman is hilarious despite his nocturnal pursuits and the tragedy of Michael Corleone is one that is near impossible not to be moved by. 
Sorcerer, for its technical prowess and moments of excitement, fundamentally lacks the characters to really strike a chord on an emotional level. Interestingly, I also find Wages of the Fear has the same dynamic, whereby even greater lengths are gone to show the people don't really deserve to be liked at all. Certainly Scannon there because of a degree of misfortune, yet at no point during the film do we see him do anything that's not in his own interest. The only reason why he helps the others is because he needs them to get to where he is going. Victor and Seam are never given any real chance to show that they have any other side either. Ironically, it's only when they begin to strike up a conversation about themselves, they are the next minute wiped off the face of the earth when their truck explodes. These men are classic anti-heroes, yet in most cases we can find some degree of humanity with which to connect with them. There are no scenes of the men doing anything that would hint more than what is presented on screen. Schneider was incensed that Freakin cut a scene with him befriending a small boy in the town, which clearly indicates to some extent that Freakin did not want the audience to become emotionally involved with the characters. Far from being a criticism of the film, it is for me anyway quite refreshing to see people on screen who I have virtually zero connection with, other than the fact they are human and in extreme peril. It is, I think, a very European sensibility. Recently, I've been devouring films of the Italian and French New Wave from the 50s and 60s, and many of them have lead protagonists who, who the directors seem more than happy to try and push the audience away from. Freakin takes this concept to a greater extreme, stripping the moments between characters that actually build the familiarity between them and the audience, such as jokes being shared or stories swapped. Perhaps it's too much to ask an audience to simply watch and react to the situations that are put before them and remove the emotional attachment to the character. Certainly we see Schneider as the lead, and naturally is where our sympathies would lie. However, he doesn't court sympathy through his action, and indeed there is no real reason to root for him. That's the wrong road. I think this road's better for us because it's higher. We take this one. No, you don't understand. This, this road is too low. It goes to the swamp. It's too much mud. Can't you read a map? We have no information on that road. You're full of shit. You take that road. We follow the map. The use of electronic scores is often a sure way of dating your film. The decision to enlist Tangerine Dream for Sorcerer now appears to be almost as bold as the film itself. The score is hugely experimental, and oddly in my opinion anyway, contributes massively to the film's otherworldly feel. There is a timeless quality to the scenes in the jungle and the village the characters are living in. We have no idea how much time has elapsed from the film's opening, and the location itself could easily be either in the modern day or past, such is how dilapidated it appears. The score doesn't rely on big themes or particularly grandiose moments, or any triumphant crescendos. Instead, it bubbles along in the background, enhancing the imagery, especially when Scandon moves through a lunar landscape in a particularly surreal sequence. What do you mean you don't know? <laughs> Get a train down to Baltimore. Pier 47. Where am I going? Where am I going?
I going? Where am I going? What do you mean you don't know? William Friedkin made it quite clear before and after the making of Sorcerer that he wanted to make a film that highlighted what he felt was the American exploitation of third world countries. America's relationship with South America has often led to support of frankly terrible regimes in the name of commercial rights and resources. Although Sorcerer is not directly a political film, it does offer quite a damning verdict on such foreign relations. Clearly the populace of the film we see see nothing of the wealth that is pumped from the ground beneath them. It's safe to assume the dictator whose image we see plastered everywhere is the main benefactor of the wealth. We do at times in the films see the locals growing closer to right when the bodies of workers are returned to the town following the explosion. We also see what I assume are rebels fighting against the government, a familiar case for many Latin and South American countries at the time. The representatives from the oil company are all American citizens and actually draw parallels to films I've seen about the British Empire during which you see small pockets of whites lording themselves over the local populace. It is an age-old story of powerful nations exploiting poorer ones to further its own cause at the expense of another, yet I don't think Freakin rams the point down the audience's throat in what I call the Bono effect. Instead he opts for a more subtle approach, the oil fields drain the resources while the rest of the country is stuck decades in the past. It also plays into the idea of the futility of what the characters are doing, the film's opening established that they are outcasts. Even if they do get the money to leave, it is more than likely they will only end up somewhere just as bad. Putting the oil well out does not wipe the slate clean. So really, where are they going to go? On a wider level, of course, they're just helping fuel the oppression that's clearly grit the land. The clear analogy of the character's situation is that they are in a form of purgatory, awaiting further judgement. It is even hinted that there are other individuals in the town with equally shady past, especially the bar owner who is suggested might be a Nazi in hiding. In appearance, at least, the town indeed the situation itself follows close approximation as hell that could be imagined in the real world. To say the film has a fatalistic outlook, therefore, is something of an understatement. The 70s, of course, were not the most positive of times before the film's release. Vietnam and Watergate had taken their toll on the collective consciousness of the nation. Frequent previous films, The French Connection and The Exorcist, are clearly not the most upbeat of films. Criminals win in The French Connection, and then there is no guarantee evil will not return in The Exorcist. Sorcerer's world is dominated by men, and for the most part, women are only reduced to bit parts. Masculinity in the film manifests itself with the characters pitted against the elements. In one montage, the drivers construct the trucks to take them on their journey through the remains of ones lifted about. Here's the kind of montage we would normally expect to see in an action film, with armour plating being attached to the trucks and lights rigged. It is of course building up to the ultimate battle, and such is the ferocity of nature at times. It has a malevolence of even the most cruel of protagonists. Wages of fear pits men against a series of obstacles. The same can be applied here, except I feel freaking plays up the natural element far more. In one scene, the train blocks the way ahead. The desperation that engulfs Scanlan manifests itself in a desperate attempt at hacking his way through the jungle, eventually ending up falling on swamp water up to his neck. Scanlan rages at the situation and the futility of his own actions, and constant natural barriers could be to a normal person cause them to wave the white flag. Instead, nature is defeated, Scanlan does reach the oil field, yet his journey, as we will see at the end, has been for nothing. I would refrain from going as far as to say as the film has an environmental message. Moreover, Phil is a comment on greed and how it corrupts the soul. In Wages of Fear, we never knew why the characters were there, but we know, as in Sorcerer, they are desperate to get out. As people die, the money in the pot increases, making the desire to complete the mission all the more burning. Come the end of the film and Scanlan does make his way back, however his past comes back to haunt him. 
if we can protract the drama more by allowing Scanlan to have the last dance with a lady in the bar before the hoods he has run from find him outside. I find the film to be particularly cruel on Scanlan. Of course we don't see him killed but it's pretty safe to assume he is a dead man. Perhaps he has the worst of the bunch whose apparent survival is an added torture, or perhaps he somehow manages to escape, but in reality I very much doubt it. We will never know and such a downbeat ending is what we can expect from the time. Infuriating for some, I personally love ambiguity in the film when what has gone before warrants such a choice. Upon returning to America, Freeburn began the daunting task of editing the footage as something resembling a coherent film. Universal had wanted an action-adventure film that would thrill audiences. Instead what they got was an action film wrapped up in a bleak morality tale about a group of people who were as likeable as the taxman. Early test screenings were met with affirmative thumbs down. Universal decided to release the film and pray it would make some of its budget back on the opening weekend before disappearing into oblivion. I once attended a lecture given by William Freakin in which he said that the day Sorcerer was released, he and a friend drove around Hollywood looking to see if people were queuing to see the film. Hope was given when they saw an enormous line of people waiting to enter a cinema. As they turned the corner their fears were quickly dashed when they realised it wasn't Sorcerer people were waiting to see, it was Star Wars. Sorcerer was only able to recoup a tiny fraction of its budget and it was the last time Freakin would be able to have the creative and financial freedom he had enjoyed before. Of course, for many, the difference between box office and budget is a sign of quality. The words flop will lead many people to think the film is bad. Sorcerer is consigned to the annuals of Hollywood lore, the rampant ego and blank checks had led to a financial disaster, and the film was considered poor even by the vast swathes of people who had completely ignored it. It's not a film without its flaws, and you can easily see why people did not connect with it, especially when compared to the likes of Star Wars with its swashbuckling feel-good vibe and out-of-this-world effects. The title of the film either does not help, Sorcerer is an almost meaningless title in the context of the film. It is in fact the name of one of the trucks used to ferry the nitroglycerin to the oil well. Universal even went as far to say the film had nothing to do with the supernatural, and according to reports, many left the cinema when they realised the film was firmly set in reality. But like all reports of its kind, I am highly sceptical if this is true or not. Obviously, a title will not make it for film, but it can at least help people gauge what the film is going to be about. We can easily imagine two people leaving the cinema, one having seen Star Wars and the other having seen Sorcerer. If you were to ask each one to explain what they would seen, I dare say Star Wars would sound a great deal more appealing than Sorcerer. Sorcerer was not butchered by the studio, and for all intents and purposes, the film we see is the one frequent intended. Time I feel has been kinder on Sorcerer, and even though it is a remake, all you need to do is compare Wages of Fear and one of the many Platinum Dunes travesties that pollute the multiplexes. By seeing the film you can tell that the intentions were far more than simply making a commercial cash-in. Indeed the film is anything but commercial and rather than diluting the themes and more darker plot elements of the wages of fear, I think Frequent actually pushes these elements a little too far to character detachment simply unpalatable for modern audiences. In a time when remakes are planned a matter of weeks after the original has been released, Sorcerer is a timely reminder that remakes and reimaginings don't have to be tired retreads of beloved properties. I do have a fear for the film's longevity. The DVD release is presented in the Academy ratio aspect, which although it was reproved by Freakin, was done so before the performer had really taken off. As such, the image does suffer from cropping. You'd only see the rear of the DVD for evidence of that. With the new formats coming out, it's not hard to imagine its long-term commercial appeal being fairly limited. It's the type of film I wish Criterion would pick up. Not only do I feel the film is worthy of adding to the collection, but also from a history perspective, is well worth preserving for the future. And that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at 24 Framescast. 
uh, my blog 24framescast.blogspot.com and you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. Many thanks and I will be in contact with you soon. Cheers, bye.